0: The Danish philosopher Søren Kierkegaard, he imagines the details of the story filling out in this way. He says, They rode in silence for three days. On the morning of the 4th, Abraham still said not a word, but raised his eyes and saw afar the mountain in Moriah. He left the lads behind and went on alone up the mountain with Isaac beside him. Isaac clung to Abraham's knees, pleaded at his feet, begged for his young life. For his fair promise, he called to mind the joy in Abraham's, Abraham's house, reminded him of the sorrow and the loneliness. Abraham climbed the mountain in Moriah. Then he turned away from Isaac for a moment. But when Isaac saw his face a second time, it was changed. His gaze was wild. His expression one of horror. He caught Isaac by the chest and threw him to the ground and said, Foolish boy, do you believe I am your father? I am an idolater. Do you believe this is God's command? No, it is my own desire. Then Isaac trembled and in his anguish cried, God in heaven, have mercy on me. God of Abraham, have mercy on me. If I have no father on earth, then be thou my father. But below his breath, Abraham said to himself, Lord in heaven, I thank thee. It is after all better that he believe that I am a monster than that he lose faith in thee. Some of us have probably viewed this story in this way. Nothing good can come from telling the truth about this story. So we look to either avoid it or distract from it or even lie about it or at least distort the interpretation of it so that we can protect God from the bad press. It's stories like these that lead Richard Dawkins, the famous atheist, to characterize the God of the Old Testament as arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. A petty, unjust, unforgiving, control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Easy on the thesaurus, Richard. And about this specific story of Abraham and Isaac, here's what Dawkins says. He says, by the standards of modern morality, this disgraceful story is an example of child abuse. And the first recorded use of the Nuremberg defense, I was only obeying orders. He likens Abraham to the Nazis and God to Hitler. And surely Dawkins has a point, right? I mean, here's the text, Genesis chapter 22, starting in verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. That is a tough text to read. But here's the problem. That's not the text. Okay, That's two verses. That's a tweet. This whole book is the text. The problem is that nowadays we think anything that's worth saying can be said in the length of a tweet or a Facebook post or a one-minute YouTube video. In fact, 60% of the articles that are shared on social media are shared without the person who shared them ever having clicked on the link and read the article in the first place. Why would you have to read the article? If it's worth saying, you can already say it in the tweet. It's hard to make heads and tails of social media sometimes. Thankfully, things are getting simpler. Uh, YouTube, I don't know if you've heard about this, but YouTube uh, and Twitter and Facebook have just agreed on a major merger to bring all three of those into one single platform. It's going to be called utwitface.com. You can blame my colleague, Michael Ramsden, for that joke. Here's my point. We shouldn't be at all surprised when reading the Twitter translation of the Bible leaves us confused. Remember Joe trying to figure out my family through a brief glimpse through the window of a new situation, which she saw as a knife fight was actually just two Italian-Americans expressing their love to each other. (laughs) If Joe can't figure out my family and my family can't figure out Joe in the 21st century, in a globalized world, speaking the same language, sort of, then of course we're going to have to put in some serious effort for us to understand a radically different Old Testament context from several thousand years ago. And this is important. That does not mean that there is something wrong with the text. What it means is that whoever is speaking these words is not looking for a casual dip-in and dip-out relationship. Whoever's words these are is looking for something much more serious. Joe once wrote me out a list of 40 things that no one knew about her before we got engaged. 40 things that no one knew about her that she wanted me to know before we got engaged. It was a beautiful thing to do. Absolutely traumatizing. <laughs> but a really beautiful thing to do. It was the hardest thing I've ever had to read. And it took time and effort and patience and tough conversations and even tears. But it was one of the best things that I've ever read in my life. The difficulty of the text matched the seriousness of the relationship that was desired. What happens when your commitment to a relationship is superficial? When you just dip in and dip out of a relationship? That relationship almost always ends in frustration and in hurt. In fact, sometimes it would be better if you had never stepped into that Relationship in the first place. The Bible is God's personal letter to each one of us. It's His letter, it's His list of the things that not everyone knows about Him, but that He wants us to know. And it's not easy. It's not intended to be easy. And it requires commitment and effort and patience and the tough conversations and, yes, sometimes even tears. But the difficult passages of the Bible are a sign of the depth of relationship that God desires with us. And when we decide to just discard them and cut them out of our Bibles, we rob ourselves of a wonderful gift. We rob ourselves of that vulnerability and that intimacy that comes through working through a difficult text together. I'd go even further and say this. A superficial reading of the Bible... A dip-in and dip-out reading of the Bible can sometimes be worse than not reading the Bible at all. Many times it will only push us away from God, lead to frustration and hurt. Because God desires serious relationship, fully committed relationship, only a serious reading of the Bible is going to draw us close to Him. So let's keep reading. Even in the initial tweet... The initial passage, we have some important clues. Verse 2, take your son, your only son. Now, if God just wanted to command Abraham, the Hebrew word he would have used would have just read ka, meaning take. But instead, the word God uses is ka-na. And the addition of that na on the end of the word, it turns it from a command into a tender plea. What it literally means is take, please, or take, I beg of you. Then we see the tender way in which God speaks about Isaac, your son, your only son, the one whom you love, whom you love. This is the very first time that the word love is used in the Bible. In Hebrew, that word for love is taken from the verb to give. And how striking that love is is first introduced to us. It's first defined for us in the Bible through this particular story, through a story of the love of a father for his only son, the very son that he's being asked to give up. Before asking anything of Abraham, God first addresses him by name, not just any name, the personal name that God himself gave to Abraham when he first called him Abraham meaning father of many it's a reminder to Abraham that God has not forgotten his promise to him that he is going to have descendants that are as numerous as the sky it's a reminder to us that we need to read not just the tweet but the entire text so what do we find when we read the entire text well first we find That time and time again throughout the Old Testament, God unqualifiedly condemns child sacrifice. Second, we learn a lot more about Abraham. We learn that God's words to Abraham in Genesis 22, this story about Abraham and Isaac, they're a deliberate parallel of the words that God used when he first called Abraham. Go by yourself from your country to the land I will show you. And how did Abraham respond when God called him to go by himself? Well, like any great biblical hero, he did the exact opposite. Abraham and Sarah, they've already been married by this point long enough that it looks unlikely by natural means that they're going to get pregnant and have a child. And so, rather than going by himself, Abraham brings his nephew, Lot, just in case he needs that backup insurance policy, just in case he needs Lot, to wind up being a foster son. Then, once he and Lot part ways, Abraham adopts his household stu- steward, Eliezer, as his heir. Again, making sure he has a backup policy just in case God doesn't come through. Later on, still continuing to doubt that God will come through for him, Abraham takes matters into his own hands and he conceives a child with his wife's maidservant, Hagar. And then lastly, even when God reiterates his promise that it will be through his wife Sarah that the promised child will come, Abraham's response is to complain and to ask God to get on board with his plan and to bless his other son, Ishmael. On eight separate occasions throughout his life, the God of the universe specifically promises Abraham that he's going to give him a son. And yet at every point, Abraham has a backup plan. At every point, he has plan B, just in case God doesn't come through. The story of Abraham's life is the story of a man struggling to accept God's promises, struggling to believe that God is going to be good, that God is going to come through for him. What about us? Do we believe God's promises? Or are we always thinking, that he's going to let us down. Where in your life do you have a backup plan? Just in case God doesn't come through. Let me put it another way. If tomorrow you were given incontrovertible evidence that God does not exist, hypothetically, that's actually something I don't think could ever happen. But if that were to happen, How would your life change if it couldn't be the case that God would come through for you? Would you be all right? I think our answer should be no. We will not be all right. Because we have staked everything on God. He is our everything. God is all we have. You know, when you invest money, all the talk is about diversifying your portfolio, right? You want to make sure not to stake too much on one thing. So if it doesn't come through, you won't take as big of a loss. Have we gotten good at diversifying our faith portfolios? Have we got good at diversifying the investment of our trust? We put our trust in God, sure we do. But do we also put a bit of our trust in money and a bit of our trust in how we look and a bit of our trust in what other people think of us? We diversify our portfolio of trust so just in case God doesn't come through, we'll still be all right. We'll still have that backup plan. Is God our plan A or our plan only? About a year ago, uh, Joe and I received an email from a woman named Betty. We had just started doing a podcast It's called Ask Away, and we just uh, received questions from people by email and Twitter, and, and we just try to respond to a few of those questions each, each podcast. And this woman, probably the second week, it was such a great affirmation of the fact that we should be doing this. Uh, and we got an email from a woman named Betty, 78 years old, God had been one of her plans, weekly church attender, tried to live by Christian principles, well-respected in her community, and yet in her older years, this is what she wrote to us. She wrote, I am 78 years old, raised in church, but I never truly committed my life to Christ and feel now that my heart is hardened past the point of doing so. I think I'm at that place and I'm worried and scared. Is there anything I can do? And Joe got Betty's phone number and they spoke on the phone and and Joe had the privilege of sharing with Betty about the gospel of grace. That as long as she was talking to Joe right then, that meant it wasn't too late for her. A God who didn't ask us to spend our whole life trying to work our way up to Him, but a God who loved us so much that He was willing to come down. Not a God who asked us to do something to be right with Him, but a God who was willing to do everything Himself in order for us to be right with Him, and a God who offers that invitation of forgiveness at any point. And they had the privilege right then of praying on the phone for her to give her life to Jesus. and joe recounting i just saw joe's face as she came you know back into the room where i was sitting after she got off the phone with betty and you could you could see salvation on joe's face and she said that afterwards was amazing to hear betty talk about how excited she was to spend every moment she had left serving jesus and they actually joked about the fact that at 78 years old you could become a new creation you could be born again At 78 years old. At 78, God finally became Betty's plan only. At over 100 years old, God finally became Abraham's plan only. He finally trusted God fully. This time, when God asked something of Abraham, Abraham didn't hesitate. Verse 3 says that early the next morning... Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. For the first time, God, Abraham did not have a plan B. Isaac says, where is the lamb? Later in the passage, Isaac said, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham doesn't have a backup plan. He hasn't packed a spare lamb Just in case, he only has one confident answer. God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So often, this story is told as the struggle of one man, Abraham. With the helpless life of a child, the victim, Isaac, hanging in the balance. But here's what the text says. I end the boy will go as the two of them went on together and the two of them went on again together and whenever in the Bible something is repeated three times in succession it's like waving a flag for our attention and three times we are told that the two of them Abraham and Isaac will make this journey together. Now we already know that Isaac is old enough to notice that the lamb is not there for the sacrifice. We're also told that it was Isaac who carried the entirety of the wood for the sacrifice up the mountain on his own back, given the amount of wood that it would take to burn long enough and hot enough to consume a whole burnt offering. That's no easy feat. You would have had to have had considerable strength. The Hebrew word used to describe Isaac as a boy is not ar It's the same word that's used throughout Genesis for young men, including Ishmael at age 18, Benjamin at age 22, and Joseph at around 30 years of age. And for those reasons, Jewish tradition does not speak of Isaac as a young boy, but rather frequently refers to him as a young adult. Abraham and Isaac set off together, yes, as father and as son, but also as partners. And together they took every step of that three-day, 50-mile trek to the mountain. And when they arrive at the mountain and prepare to climb it, Abraham, an amazing line, Abraham tells his servants to wait for both of them because he and Isaac will be returning from the mountain together. Abraham expects, despite God's command, he expects to come down from the top of the mountain together with Isaac. It's a curious line. But Hebrews 11 gives us a glimpse into Abraham's thoughts, starting in verse 17. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so, in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. And then when Abraham and Isaac arrive on the top of that mountain, the elderly Abraham, over a 100 years old, he faces no resistance from Isaac when he's bound. A young man who surely could have won in a fight. If it had come to that all of this points strongly to, to the conclusion that Isaac is not an unwilling victim in this scenario. Rather, he's a willing participant in this act of obedience to God. This is not just a story of the faith of Abraham. It is very much a story also of the faith of Isaac. So often people get confused by what this story is really about. This is not a celebration of blind faith that would condemn people to the gas chambers on the uh, gas chambers on the justification that we're just obeying orders it is nothing like that it is not a celebration of faith that says god i will follow you even if you are not good it is not a celebration of faith that says god i will follow you irrationally no abraham reasoned that god had proven in his life that he was good he reasoned that god could even raise from the dead. He reasoned that there was no safer place for his son to be than right in the center of God's will. And Isaac agreed. And even as re- Abraham raised that knife, the test of faith was not whether he would be willing to cause the death of his son, but whether he was finally, fully willing to trust God for the life Of his son. Reflecting on this passage, philosopher Eleanor Stump. She says, The faith that makes Abraham the father of faith has its root in Abraham's acceptance of the goodness of God. He believes that if he obeys God's command, Isaac will go on to live, to flourish, and to have descendants. And so he wills to stake his son on God's goodness. What an astounding! picture of faith of faith strong enough not just to stake your own life on but to be willing to stake the lives of those you love as an evangelist i have to ask this question all the time is jesus good news for everyone is the gospel good news for everyone is jesus good news for my colleague hassan when he continues to preach Christ in a region of the world where he literally has a bounty on his head. Is Jesus good news for him and his family? Is Jesus good news for a Muslim, even though following Jesus might mean being estranged from their family? Is Jesus good news for the gay community? If a person from the gay community decides to choose Jesus and follow Jesus... And put their identity in Him. And follow Jesus' vision for sexuality. Is that really good news for them? In Mark 10, Jesus promises us that those who make serious sacrifices in order to follow Him will receive a hundredfold. And it says, not only in the life to come, but even in this life. Is that true even for the gay community? Is my God big enough To make good on that promise. One of our RZM speakers, a friend of ours, he's an Anglican priest. He ministers in a region of northern Nigeria that's terrorized by Boko Haram. Several times in the last couple of months, the violence has gotten so bad that our friend has found himself digging mass graves. For this friend of mine, being a Christian has meant having to prepare his three young boys for the very real possibility of dying as Christian martyrs if militants from Boko Haram were to show up at their door and to look to kill them. Not long ago this friend of ours was driving with his boys and he was driving into a a dangerous region and he was and he came up on a roadblock set up by militants from Boko Haram. Weapons in hand. And our friend instinctively reached his arm out, turned down the music, the Christian worship music that was being played in the car. And then he reached up and he took out his clerical collar and he hit it. And then his son, sitting in the passenger seat, looked at him and said, Daddy, what are you doing? Don't you want them to know that we follow Jesus? And in that moment, our friend reasoned, like Abraham, that even if it meant raising them from the dead, God was trustworthy. And that he could stake his son's life on the goodness of God. And he told his son that he was right. And he picked the, the collar back up. Put it back on. And he says that as they drove through that roadblock. He said they just drove right through. And he said they didn't even look at them. He said it was as if, as if they couldn't even be seen. As if they were not even there. Those of us who have children or grandchildren, Joe and I have our first on the way, saying lines like this is all of a sudden much more real. Do we fully entrust even them to God's goodness, even though he may call them to a life of great sacrifice? Or do we make sure to have a plan B, just in case God doesn't come through? Let me reaffirm one thing very clearly. The Abraham and Isaac story is in no way an affirmation of child sacrifice. In fact, it is exactly the opposite. Like most married couples, Joe and I don't always see eye to eye when it comes to what to watch on TV. Joe usually wants to watch Pride and Prejudice for the 684th time. Uh, I usually want to watch uh, baseball Jo describes baseball from her British perspective as a bunch of grown men running around in circles in their pajamas. (laughs) Never quite thought about it that way until she said it, but those uniforms do look quite a lot like pajamas. Uh, I describe Pride and Prejudice as a bunch of grown women talking in circles in their pajamas. Now, when I get fed up with watching Pride and Prejudice for the gazillionth time, I could just tell Jo to stop hogging the screen. But if I really want my protest to be registered and remembered, then this is what I'll do. I'll wait until Mr. Darcy is right in the middle of finally confessing his love to Elizabeth... Miss Elizabeth, I have struggled in vain and I can bear it no longer. I have fought against my better judgment, my family's expectations, the inferiority of your birth by rank and circumstance. All these things I am willing to put aside and ask you to end my agony. And then right at the last moment, when he's just about to say it, I'll switch to the Braves game. Okay. Not that this has ever happened. Hypothetical. In the end, we usually wind up doing a marriage compromise. Joe wants to watch Pride and Prejudice, I want to watch The Braves, uh, and so we compromise and we watch Pride and Prejudice. (laughs) Again. When Rosa Parks wanted to protest racial segregation in America on public transportation, she didn't do it by just avoiding the bus. No, she did it by going right to the place of injustice and right to the moment when she was supposed to conform to the evil of her day. And then right there, right then, she made a public statement of defiance. If God wanted to protest child sacrifice so fiercely, And so uncompromisingly that it would never be forgotten in the collective memory of his people. What stronger way to do that than to take Abraham and Isaac up that mountain to the high places where child sacrifices were made. To confront them with the full reality of the horror of the act. And then at the last possible moment, right then, right there, to provide another way. A better way, a substitute. And Abraham looks up and sees the ram caught in the thicket. And hears the angel of the Lord. And Isaac is not sacrificed, and the ram becomes the substitute. 3,000 years later, we still have this story etched in our memory, a permanent reminder to us that the God of the Bible will not allow us to do as the other nations did to sacrifice our children. And a permanent reminder to us that unlike every other religion, being right with God is not about us providing a sacrifice for God, but about God providing a sacrifice for us. Richard Dawkins calls this a disgraceful story of child abuse, likening Abraham's behavior to that of the Nazis. Why? Because he knows next to nothing... About the Bible. And yet, here's a challenging question for us as the church How often have our affections towards the Bible been as influenced by the caricatured and uninformed criticisms of others than by actual serious study and meditation in the context of community of the Word of God? Yesterday, I Googled top 10 worst bible passages one of the first things that comes up is a survey called chapter and worse see what they did there chapter and verse chapter and worse and abraham and isaac comes in at number eight the toughest objections to god are more readily available than ever anyone can find them in five seconds with a cell phone. The toughest objections are more easily accessible than ever. Another question for the church, are the best responses more easily accessible than ever? During a Q&A last year, Joe and I were together, and a Christian walked up to the microphone, and he asked this question, sincere question. He said, Do you think we should remove the Bibles from our churches in order to reach atheists? we said no we said the real problem is that too often we've actually let critics already remove the bibles from our churches by tearing out passage after passage after difficult passage until what's left is barely recognizable i would have answered differently if he had asked do you think we should stop reading our bibles i might have then answered provocatively I might have answered yes, because the Bible never asks us to merely read God's Word. It asks us to meditate on it day and night, to not let it depart from our mouths, to store it up in our hearts, to let it dwell in us richly, to devote ourselves to it, to examine it, to delight in it, to treasure it. We need more of God's Word, not less, not a thin reading that skims just enough of the Abraham and Isaac story to let us know, that we want to avoid it, but a deep reading, a deep reading that says, I hope my friends ask me about the most difficult passages in the Bible. I hope my friends ask me about the story of Abraham and Isaac, because I'm ready To tell them about a man who finally figured out, even in his old age, how to finally put his full trust in God. I'm ready to tell them about the beautiful partnership and the journey taken between a father and a son who fully trusted him. I'm ready to tell them about a God who publicly stands against injustice, who would not stand for the evil of his day. I'm ready to tell them about the only God who provides the only God who doesn't ask us to provide by our own merit and earning and desert for our salvation, but he is the one who provides for it. I'm ready to tell them about a God who keeps his promises, a God who kept his promise to Abraham that through him he would have many descendants and they would bless all of the nations. For many years later, we encounter Another father and son, his only son, the one whom he loved. A father and son who set out on a journey together, a journey that took them up a mountain, with the son carrying the wood for the sacrifice on his back, with the father continuing step by step, Through grief with the son as a willing participant declaring no one takes my life from me but I lay it down of my own accord until they reach the place of provision where crowned with thorns like a ram stuck in a thicket this beloved son this lamb of God offered himself. As a sacrificial substitute, fulfilling the promise that God has made to every one of us that if we put our full trust in him, we will live. Recently, I was on the phone with a colleague of mine and he wanted to talk because he's newly married and and he was having, he knew he had to have a certain conversation with his wife and he was having difficulty having it. And the line that I found coming out of my mouth was difficult conversations will not undermine your relationship but not having them will. And as I draw to a close with my message this morning I want to extend an invitation. I want to extend an invitation both to those for whom that step of taking God's words seriously and building trust and relationship with Him would be brand new. And I also want to extend an invitation to those like Betty who had been in church week after week, who had tried to live by Christian principles, who knew the right answers to all the right questions. But in her most honest moment, knew that she hadn't given herself fully to God. Maybe people in the room this morning who are realizing that they're scared of the Bible, they're scared of God's words, and the reason for that is because we have listened more deeply to what the critics have told us about God's word. We have listened more seriously to what culture has told us about God's Word, then we have listened to God's words Himself. What His words say about who He is. What His words say about who we are. What His words say about how we can be united to Him in the context of relationship. Let's not wait until we're 78 like Betty to take that full step of trusting God's words and saying, This is not going to be a surface-level relationship. This is not going to be a dip-in and dip-out relationship. You're not going to be my plan B, God. You're not going to be my my backup policy. And I recognize that that means the relationship is not going to be easier. It's going to be harder. And sometimes dealing with your words is going to take effort and it's going to take time. It's going to take patience and sometimes it's even going to take tears. But God, you are worth it. Because you alone have the words of life. For some of us, we may be seeing life in the words of God for the very first time. And just like you would do in any relationship, there comes an important moment where you want to say to that person, I want to take a step into relationship with you. That doesn't mean you have all the answers. I have more questions about God now than I did before I was a Christian. But at some point, I said, I'm putting my trust in you, God for my identity, for my forgiveness, for my life. I hope there are people here this morning who want to say that. And then I also hope that there are people this morning who want to say, I'm excited, maybe for the first time in a long time, to dig into the Word of God, to dig into even the hardest passages, to examine it, to explore it, to open up this list of the 40 things that not many people know about God and trust that even if it's hard to read, it's going to be the most beautiful and life-giving thing that we could ever read and study and let dwell richly in our hearts.